Y'all are terrible people. <laughs> no. As my wife put me on blast a second ago, uh, yeah, I'm not that much that way. I was on this vacation, though, and um, you know when you're on vacation, you get things that you don't want to eat, but you get them anyway? So I was on vacation with some friends. I, got, I was like, I'm going to get a milkshake. I don't get milkshakes that often, but it's like a good vacation food, right? So I get a milkshake, and I'm drinking it, and one of the friends who was on vacation with us, she picks up my milkshake, she takes a sip. And I'm like, that's cool. We're on vacation, so like, I guess she can have a sip. And she takes another sip, and I'm like, girl, if you wanted a milkshake, you probably should have just gotten yourself a milkshake. You're on vacation, too. You can do that. But I'm not saying anything. I take a couple more sips. She takes a couple more sips. I take another sip. And then finally, she's like, Jonathan, um, I don't mind if you want to share my milkshake with me, but you probably should go get your own. And I was like, this is my milkshake. And she was like, wait, what? Yo, we both had crazy scarcity over this milkshake that we both thought was ours. It was mine, turned out. And she felt bad, um, as she should have. But um, what's funny is, the, is like this mentality. Because while she was drinking that, and I think this is like you know, the dumbest way to bring this up, but while she, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm going, she's going to drink it all. I am not going to have enough, right? I'm not going to have enough. And I think there's a scarcity mentality that's pervasive. And that's a dumb reason to have a scarcity mentality. But I think in general, we create a, we create a mindset that says, I don't know if there's going to be enough. I mean, we live in this city. And this city, just by us actually living here, puts us in a position where we have to ask ourselves about once a month, when the bills roll around, rent rolls around, like, are we going to have enough? Do we have enough, right? We have this scarcity mentality. It shows up in other ways, too. Uh, you ever go to a birthday party and all the kids are getting the goodie bags, right? There's enough goodie bags for everybody, right? And they all have the same things in them, but the kids go nuts, right? And why do they go nuts? Because there might not be enough. Uh, I was listening to this message by a pastor named Brian Zond, and he, had a, he brought up a good point. He goes, you know what? He said, like, discovery, colonialism, imperialism, all the things we want to call that, um, you know, all the ways we've taken over other places, all the ways that wars have started, divided countries have started. It's not in the, in, like the, in the name of discovery or in the name of searching out something new. It's in the name of scarcity. You don't go and you don't search out those places if you already believe you have enough. You don't go out and you don't search out those places if you already believe you have abundance, right? You do it because you're afraid. You need more. And so we see like really terrible atrocities happen because people don't believe they have enough and are taking it from others, right? There's this idea, this scarcity idea that there's not enough. Um, I love the fact that like we can trace back to humanity for thousands upon thousands of years just by reading our Bibles. And so we have our friends, the Israelites, wonderful group of people. And we get to look at them, and we get to see, guess what they had, too? They had a scarcity mentality as well. They were freaked out as well. So uh, what they do is they're in slavery, and they're in slavery to Egypt. And while they're in slavery to Egypt, um, they're literally doing backbreaking work. They're literally doing work that's killing them. Like, literally, uh, it's awful. And they're freed from slavery. They're wandering in the wilderness, and they start complaining. <laughs> they start complaining to Moses. They're like, ah, oh, we don't have enough. We don't have enough to eat. Send us back into slavery. At least then we got to eat, right? That's what they're thinking. It's this, this mentality. So what does God do? Does anybody know what God does in this situation? Brings a little bit of quail, right? Brings some quail, brings some manna. You know what manna means? Anybody know? It's kind of a funny thing. It really has nothing to do with the message. Manna means what is it? That's how it translates. So when God brings manna, he's bringing what is it? 
<laughs> That's what he's bringing to us. Um, but anyway, so he brings, what is it? He brings some quail, and, and the people eat. And then Moses says, don't collect any more than what you need. Don't do that. Okay, that's what God commands. And then I'm going to read you this scripture. And it said, everyone gathers just as much as they need. And then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some paid no attention to Moses, so they kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses is angry with them. Even when God is providing, we still have a mentality that says there is not enough. It's a scarcity mentality. We're not going to make it. And then, I love the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is a book filled with rules, and it's really, really tough to read. But I like it, and I'll tell you why I like it, because it's God bringing some rules, and God is saying, if you want to live as a free people, this is how you live. If you want your mentality to be that of a free mentality, this is how you live. If you want to live just in pure freedom, here's how I want you to live. And one of the things God says, he says, if you're going to live in pure freedom, then every 50 years I want you to live in jubilee. And what jubilee is, is you're basically saying, I'm not going to grow anything. I'm not going to harvest anything. I'm going to simply believe that there is enough for me. That's what I'm going to do. And not only that, but if I have land, I'm going to give my land back to people who no longer have land anymore. So if you were homeless, uh, you could count on Jubilee as being the time where that land that was taken away from you will be given back to you. It's this time where the entire nation, for one year, it's a one-year thing, celebrates the fact that everybody has enough. There is abundance. Nobody has to live in scarcity mentality. That's what God says in Leviticus that God wants. And we have evidence that it never happened. We have evidence that it never, ever happened. Most scholars and theologians will say that Israel never, ever once practiced the year Jubilee because we live in a mentality that says there is never enough. So what do we do with that? Well, that's pervasive. It's pervasive throughout all humanity. It's pervasive right up through the time of Jesus. It's pervasive up into 64 AD. In 64 AD, there was an emperor, and his name was Nero. Anybody ever hear of Nero before? Nero was an emperor, and Nero had this grand plan to raise um, all the buildings in Rome and build up new buildings. And nobody liked the plan. They said, Nero, you're crazy. And so what happened was, a couple months later, a mysterious fire starts. And what does that mysterious fire do? All the buildings get raised. That's what it does. So people, are, they're ready to kill Nero. They're ready to kill him. And Nero goes, but it wasn't me who started that fire. It was this group of 40,000 that are across the river uh, in Rome. And it's still Rome, but it's across the river. And they're called Messianic Jews. They're the ones that started the fire. Look, nothing happened to their area. right? And so everybody's like, oh, nothing happened to the Messianic Jews who live across the river. It's because they lived across the river. <laughs> but that did not matter. And so what happened next was mini-genocide. That's what happened next. Centurions would knock on the, do the doors of Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews were these Christ-believing people. They were still people that, uh, you know, they, they were a minority. People didn't quite know who they were or what to do with them. They knocked on their doors. They pulled them from their homes. They tortured them, and they killed them for this fire that was started. Family members had to give up other family members. Neighbors had to give up other neighbors. Uh, I think you've probably, most, most of you have heard the terrible stories about how Nero would set people on fire and use them as torches during his parties um, as payback for this fire that happened. And so when you talk about a scarcity mentality, what you're talking about is wondering whether or not you were even going to live the next day. And I just want to take a sidebar, a quick sidebar, and say we, we live here in New York City. And most of us in this room can basically pay our rent or live and eat, right? Most of us can do that. And so we're not even hitting the fact that there is a large swath of the world that really might live day to day not knowing if they're going to live or not, right? That's a real scarcity mentality. Just a quick sidebar to remember that. 
And so that's how these people are living, right? They're living in such a way, well, they don't know if they're going to wake up and they're going to be alive and there's not enough food because they can't go out because if they go out, they're going to get killed. And so they don't know what to do. That's true scarcity. And at the time where all this is happening, this book starts to be, uh, this letter, this book is circulated around to all the Messianic Jews and it's called the Gospel of Mark. How many people have heard of the Gospel of Mark before? It's the first gospel written, right? And it's starting to be, uh, it's spread around. So why is this gospel spread around? It's the first one. People are starting to get, um, I guess, maybe energized or at least a little bit more optimistic about their lot in life because of the gospel of Mark. And one of the stories in the gospel of Mark is the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. And so I've been asking you in this whole miracle series, what can you imagine when you imagine miracles happening? Not did it happen, did it not happen? But what can you imagine when you imagine miracles happening? What can you imagine for these people who would wake up every day in scarcity mode? Am I going to die today? Will I have enough to eat today? What can we imagine when we imagine miracles happening? So they would read this story, and the story went like this. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things, and by this time it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. And Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave to them the disciples to distribute to the people. And he also divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. If you are in a place where you feel scarcity... You do not know if you're going to have enough for the next day. What can you imagine this miracle might do for you? How might it help you live? Can you imagine what abundance might look like? And I think what Jesus is saying in this story and what he's saying and what the the Gospel of Mark writer makes sure that he puts in there or she puts in there is this idea of, um, you know, but it's not possible because the disciples come and they go, this is impossible. It's not possible to do this. Um, it would be like half a year's wages, right? That's what, that's what they say. And so I think what Jesus or what this author is saying is we're looking at problems first and not possibilities. And some would say it's a pretty smart way to live. Look at the problems first, and then from there you can get the possibilities. What Jesus is saying is he's saying there are possibilities. They're there, but you're not able to see them because the problem is right here. Right? What if we're able to see the possibilities And what if we were able to say, oh my gosh, look over there, that's abundance. I can get to abundance. Yeah, there's some steps along the way, but I can get to abundance, but we don't do that. What we go is, there's a problem right there, and so I can't even see abundance out there that way straight ahead because I'm dealing with what's right in front of me right now. And what Jesus is saying is, what can you imagine when you imagine that your, your problems turn into possibilities? What can you do when you're focusing in on the possibility first? What does life look like then? What life looks like is a miracle. Looks like a way where people come together. Looks like a way where food is had and there's enough and there's abundance. What happens when you look beyond the problems to the possibilities? That's what Jesus is saying. So what happens to these people who are literally in the middle of a mini genocide? History tells us, and it's frankly amazing, because what they do, these people enact Jubilee. 
They enact jubilee. They're all under persecution. They all decide they're going to sell stuff. They all sell their homes. They all band together. They bring money together. They make sure everybody has enough. They make sure everybody has a place to live. They make sure everybody's protected as best as possible, and they worship. They practice jubilee. It becomes a miracle. In the midst of this many, this many genocide, the people are like, we're going to continue to worship. We're going to continue to live, and that's what they do. They enact Jubilee, that is a miracle. In fact, it's such a miracle. There's a letter from a guy named Pliny the Younger, who also makes an incredible beer. But Pliny the Younger um, sends a letter and he says, I don't even know what to do with these Christian people because I torture them and I kill them and then they all get back together and have meals together and sing together and share together. What do I do? Like, that's what the letter says because that's what happens when we can imagine miracles happening. We imagine abundance. We imagine jubilee. We imagine that the problems aren't the problems. There's possibilities. And I have a confession for you. This is my confession. I don't think I've been able to imagine that. I don't think I've been able to imagine possibility in the past couple of years. About eight months ago, somebody came to me and somebody said, uh, Jonathan, what's the giant vision you have for your church? And I was like, oh, man, I haven't been able to think about that. And it sort of shocked people because pastors are always supposed to think about the giant vision you have for the church. And they said, well, why? Um, and I told them the story that I'm going to tell you right now that some of you have heard, but it's worth telling again. 2014, I become the senior pastor over two locations, Forefront Manhattan, Forefront Brooklyn. How many people knew we had a Forefront in Manhattan? Good. <laughs> and I look at our budget, and I go, oh, my goodness, this budget doesn't work. And the reason the budget doesn't work, it was a budget of about a million dollars, and there were a few families giving about half of that money. And so I was like, this isn't going to work, especially because those few families are moving away to other parts of the country. What are we going to do? And so it was this terrible time like, to become the leader and to have to like, start to make cuts and start to uh, cut staff. And then we had to downsize offices. And it was just this stressful time where I was like, OK, we'll make cuts, but we're going to be OK. And it's, it's going to be fine. And it wasn't fine. It just wasn't ever fine. There are some things that happened between staffs of Forefront Manhattan and Forefront Brooklyn that our ideologies changed. They were a little bit different. We lived in a scarcity mentality where every time we wanted to bring up something that we thought might be life-giving or might help our church or might grow us spiritually, we said, no, we can't do it. We just can't do it. Look, we're having to pare down the budget. Let's just stop. That's sort of where we lived. To the point where in January of 2017, we decided that Forefront Manhattan and Forefront Brooklyn should make a financial split from one another, which meant that we were still the same 501c3, but everything else was different. Everything else was different. And maybe you felt that, those of you who were here uh, last year in January 2017, maybe you felt that a little bit. Uh, maybe you didn't, but I can tell you this. I can tell you it was absolutely devastating for the staff. Devastating for me. Really devastating. I lost friendships. I lost people I cared about. I recognized that our church wasn't thriving the way our church needed to thrive. I recognized I was living in a scarcity mentality. I recognized that we weren't being transparent enough about our finances. I recognized that we weren't going to make it as a staff, as leaders, unless we got other people to help us. It was, it was hard. What's your vision, Jonathan? I don't know. I can't imagine it. I'm living in a scarcity mentality. So what happened next? Some of the stuff Don said. We're like, all right, we need a budget that makes sense. And thank God for good leadership team members who created a budget that makes sense. And if, by the way, if anybody wants to see that budget, it's on our website all the time for anybody to see. Um, everything from what we pay in rent all the way down to what we pay for QuickBooks each month. Everything is there. Every dime that we spend is there. So check that out. 
And I was thankful that we were able to get a budget together. And then deacons came along. And while our deacons, it was the first year we did it. And it was a little messy and a little confusing. The deacons saved the life of the staff because they were like, we're here to help. We're here to do good things. We want to see our church thrive. And then we did a campaign last year. How many people remember the Y campaign that we did last year? And I said, and when I look back on I'm being very vulnerable today and I feel a little scared to say this. But when I look back, I think maybe that campaign even came out of a little bit of my anxiety a little bit of my hurt, a little bit of my pain from the separation. And I said, why does this church matter? Why should we keep it around? Because if it matters, then we should give $60,000 to it. And what our church did was they said, you know what? I'm not going to give $60,000 to it. I'm going to give $72,000 to it. And that's what everybody did. They gave that much. And all of a sudden, you start to pick your head up a little bit. And all of a sudden, people say, what's the vision of the church? And I go, I don't, can you imagine? Can you imagine what our church could be? And so my friend said to me, he goes, well, what, what is it? Tell me about it. I said, can you imagine a church? I said, can you imagine a church that truly, truly believes in the good news of the gospel? And he said, everybody says that. And I said, hear me out. I said, the good news of the gospel for everybody else is here we are on earth. There's heaven. There's hell. Stay out of hell. Go to heaven. I was like, that bores me to death. We're not doing anything community-wise. We're not doing anything to serve. There's no justice there. Jesus talks a thousand more times. Well, not a thousand more times. A lot more times about the kingdom of heaven here on earth than he does about going to any other heaven or hell. We get to usher in that kingdom. And he goes, that's pretty cool. And I go, that's pretty cool. Yeah, we get to usher it in. And then he, and he goes, what else? I go, imagine a church where people have been told that they are separate from God. Imagine a church where people there have been told they've been separate from God because of, because of gender identity, because of orientation, because of ethnicity, because of anything else. And they've been told that God doesn't love them because they've got to fix this one thing about themselves. And I said, imagine our church, a church that says everyone's affirmed, everyone's included, everyone is loved because of who they are. End. Stop. And he goes, that's pretty dope. And I went, that is pretty dope. Imagine that church. I said, imagine a church that says we take scripture so seriously that we want to see it through brand new lenses where Jesus Christ is coming alive in ways Jesus Christ has never come alive before. Imagine that church. And I kept going on. Imagine a church where patriarchy isn't like God the Father, even though we sang good, good father. But then my wife was like, good, good mother as well. Right? Imagine that infinite and unimaginable God that can be those things for us, that rescues us in those ways. Imagine that church. And my friend says, so how? I pick my head up because now I'm out of scarcity mode, right? Now I'm starting to think about possibilities. And so I want to tell you all how. I think there's three ways our church moves forward. And I think these ways are really important. When our church was at its best, well, I think we're probably at our best now. But when our church was maybe at its biggest, we did like retreats and we got together and we created camaraderie and we built relationships. And I said, I think our church will thrive if we continue to build within and continue to love one another, serve one another, help one another, spur one another on, teach one another, pray with one another, do all those things inside of our church. I can see our church growing and becoming mature and strong, and I can see us living in abundance. I can see us practicing jubilee in this little group. I can see it happening. And I said, but I don't want to stop there because I see it happening in New York City too. And if our church is bringing the kingdom of heaven, we got to bring the kingdom of heaven to New York City and so what we started to do is we started to partner with the Arab American Family Support Center here in New York City. We're partnering with the New York City Interfaith Alliance. We're partnering with um, uh, Restore. We partner with Nomi Network, all of which are based out of New York because we're like, you know what? God calls us to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. We can do it in New York City. We can have a voice here. And not only can we have a voice just in organizations and different justice things, we can have a voice for people who think church is miserable because they've been told they're not welcome. 
We can be a voice for those people. People are welcome. You are welcome. You are affirmed. You are included. We get to do that for New York City. And then I said, if I'm thinking about abundance, if I'm imagining, if I'm imagining what can happen when miracles happen, I think we can have a national influence. We had a podcast. Anybody remember our podcast? One person. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> our podcast had tens of thousands of people listening to it. Tens of thousands of people. People would sometimes email Ben, uh, myself sometimes, and they would just be like, you know what, I live over here. And they would say, like, South Carolina, whatever. And they would say things like, it's nice to know there is a God who loves me down here, or something to that effect. And I said, our church has a job to spread the good news, not just in this building, not just in this community, not just in New York City, but nationally. That is what our vision is. And so imagine what abundance looks like. Imagine if we have enough. Imagine when, when we say, like, no, there's no problems. There's just the possibilities. What we can do to change this place for God, for the good news of Jesus Christ. I think we become the just and generous church we've always envisioned, if not more. That's what I can imagine. That's what I believe. And my friend was like, go do it. And I was like, I'm too tired. <laughs> And then I said, but I will, yeah, I think we're going to do it. And that's what we're going to do. So we're starting this Imagine campaign. How many people were here for the Y campaign last year? After we raised that money, we raised the money for the Y campaign. And I said to everybody, mark my words, next year we're going to do another campaign. Do you remember me saying that? Here's the next campaign. It's here. And what if we imagine abundance? What if we act in Jubilee? I can tell you that we need $39,000. You can take a look at our budget. We need $39,000 um, raised in this campaign, this Imagine campaign, and this we're calling our operating goal. You want to round it up to 40K? Let's round it up to 40K. $40,000 is called our operating goal. Operating goal means that we still do all the great things our church does. It means we still have a presence in New York City. It means we still serve communities in and around New York City. It means we're still giving to places like Left Hand Church in Colorado and making sure that other churches are planted. It still means we're having Sunday morning services. It still means our staff is here and available. It means we do all the things that we've come to know this church to be able to do. And in order to do that, we need to raise operating money, about $40,000. $40,000 makes sure that our church ends the year about $14,000 in the black. That's what it does. That's good. I think our church is great, don't you? But can you imagine? Can you imagine what might happen if we raise $60,000? Imagine what would happen if we had a stretch goal of $60,000, where all of a sudden we have money. In, in the years that I've been here, we've never had money, like $20,000 to spend. Like, do we, we just haven't, but imagine we did. What would we do? What would you do? What would our church do? What would our community do? I think of things like, what if we had a budget for every small group, so every small group can work in their community, give to people in need in their community, help people within the group. I think about like, you know, Enneagram and anti-racism series were incredible and important and we barely scratched the surface on both. What if we continue to pay people to come in and to train us and to work with us and to teach us? That costs money, but it'd be a good thing. Can you imagine the way our church works when we live in that kind of abundance? Can you imagine being able to do more than just help with a day of service on May 5th, which I think is incredibly important? but to help an organization continue to succeed and survive and thrive by being able to give more than what we give now. Can you imagine? What can you imagine when you imagine abundance? I imagine a dream goal. I imagine like 90K. 90K, $50,000 over budget. There was a couple years, 
for those of us who have been around a long time, a couple years before Forefront was even around, that we had that. We would just give it away. We gave it away to places like Restore and Nomi and Defy, like thousands of dollars. And I'm like, imagine we could just give that money away again. What would that be like to live in that kind of abundance? And then I was like, imagine how many people went on retreats with Forefront? I was like, imagine going on retreats again. They cost a lot of money. I'd like to do them again. We learn a lot. Imagine that. Imagine having a float in a place like the Pride Parade. We're going down the street and thousands of people who have been told that they are not loved by God, our church is onto this float and we're saying, we are telling you, you have always been loved, you have always been affirmed and you've always been included. Imagine that. What could our church do? What would our church look like? How would our church be? How would our church thrive? Right now, there are people like me who say, you know what, I like it, but there's a problem and I can't get past the problem. And what I'm asking us to do is, yeah, we'll address the problems and I want to make sure questions are answered. And what you'll know is that every week after every one of our campaign messages, uh, either myself or one of our leadership team members will be here to respond to questions. That's going to happen. But what if we didn't see them as problems? We saw everything as possibilities. Those possibilities became miracles. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do today. I'm going to ask you to come up and take communion. Let's celebrate the fact that Jesus died and was resurrected and still lives. Like, let's celebrate that. That's good news. The kingdom of heaven is still here, and it's still with us, right? That's great news. And as we celebrate, you have a, a sticky note that's on your, on your chair right there, and you have a pen. Write down what you can imagine. What could you imagine for our church? Maybe you've been coming here a long, long time. What do you imagine our church doing? Maybe you've been coming for a couple weeks. What do you imagine our church doing? And when you come up to take communion, I want you to post your sticky note right here. We're going to keep these boards up the entire series. I want people's imaginations to be all over this place. And I want it to, when miracles happen and we start to see abundance, these things that you've all written down come to fruition. I mean, not every single one of them, of course. But, you know, we'll keep them for further years. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit back down and I want you to pray through what you're going to contribute, what you imagine giving, how Jubilee happens for this church and how you bring it. Maybe you're new, maybe you've been coming for a couple months and you're like, yeah, I think I'm ready to start giving. Great. You can make a pledge on this card, this Imagine card that's right here. Maybe you already give and you're like, you know what, I want to give a little bit more. Do that. Maybe you're like, I'm only in a position to give a one-time gift um, and, and that's all I can really do. Great. Do that. But do it with a dream. Do it with the imagination that our church is moving from what limits us and the problems into what God is calling us and the possibilities. Can you imagine? And when we imagine, we get this story. There's a boy here, and he's only got five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? And Jesus says, make the people sit. And then he takes the loaves, and he gives thanks, and he distributes them to those who are seated, and the fish, and they ate as much as they wanted, because the impossible is now possible. It is an absolute miracle. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this church community. Thank you for this group who comes together to hear this message and comes together challenged, and I pray you would continue to challenge us. Challenge us to see abundance. Challenge us to see what's possible instead of the problems. I pray you would give us strength in this process not to keep our nose to the ground and not to be able to be visionaries, but to be visionaries and to see what we can do for your kingdom. I pray this in your name. Amen.